Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. I'm Ben Janowitz. I'm Zach Smarin. Today we'll be discussing our recent travels in Poland, primarily to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But during Mitch, we met with Poles and Jews, many of which were socialists and Bundists. We also found the house my great-grandfather grew up in, in a small town called Redimno. He spent the first 15 years of his life there, before moving to the U.S. Back in the day, he called it Redem, or Redem. To me, that really was impactful to really take back the name Redem instead of Redimno, because as someone that goes back with Ashkenazi roots, being able to use the language that they used, which was in Yiddish, it's like an indigenous geography. We are able to understand our connection to a place and in doing so, really reclaim our connection to the land. And really, I found it helping me understand who I am and where I came from. This is also the first episode which features an interview with guests. We have Julia Bard and David Rosenberg from the Jewish Socialist Group who were in Warsaw for the commemoration and the meetings. And we'll be discussing with them what the Jewish Socialist Group is, how it works, what kind of plans does it have, how does it situate itself in the Jewish community in Britain, and many more things. One note that I just wanted to make is about the interview structure that we want to have. Uh, we're having guests from all different walks of life, different groups, and so on. Sometimes we agree with them on a lot of stuff, sometimes we don't, but we always want to have meaningful conversations. And in order to have these meaningful conversations, we want to ask challenging and intriguing questions that people who might not necessarily already agree with everything that our guests are saying might be asking. So we will have that right after the intro. So let's get into this. Well, welcome, David and Julia. We're really excited to have you. We're really pleased to be yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> just to start, would you like to just tell us a little bit about who you both are, where you've come from, and how you've become involved with the Jewish Socialist Group? We are from London in the UK, and I've been involved in the Jewish Socialist Group since the early 1980s. And one of my prime involvements with the Jewish Socialist Group is to produce our magazine. The group didn't have a publication when I joined it, just had some bits of paper. I'm a journalist by background, but my political background at that point was in campaigning grassroots journalism. And I convinced the group that we could teach people who wanted to learn writing and editorial and production skills. And that's what we did. So our magazine started in 1985 and is still going. So that's my practical involvement in the group. Yeah, I joined the group in my first year at university, which was a long time ago, in 1976. And I'd kind of heard about it a bit by accident. I was at Leeds University. I went over to spend a weekend with some friends at Manchester University. I was at a party, got talking to uh, a young woman who had the same badge as me, which was Chili Fights. I mean, this is, um, you know, just shortly 
the years shortly after the coup in Chile. And we got talking about various things, including Jewish and socialisty type things. And she says, oh, you should speak to my mum. She's in the Jewish socialist group. And so, um, and at that time, the centre of the Jewish socialist group was Manchester and Liverpool in the north of England. But I did make contact with them. I went over to a couple of meetings and at that time, I had a number of friends at different universities around Britain, and we kind of joined as a group, joined the Jewish Socialist Group, and within a year or two, we were able to establish at least a temporary London branch based on the students who were there in between term times and that's how it got going and at that time anti-racism and anti-fascism were very strong themes of the group the national front fascists were very active as was the resistance to that and there was also a kind of concern that discussion of Israel Palestine the whole region and the politics of that was not it wasn't where the left showed its real sophistication and we thought we maybe had something to add to that or throw some questions into that. So it wasn't seen as an overall Jewish socialist program, if you like, at, at, at that point. It was more that there were Jewish socialists organising on certain issues. And that got clarified in the early 1980s and where we adopted increasingly kind of Bundist perspectives. From what I've heard about the JSG, from which I've heard a little bit, because uh, my father was involved in it as well back in those days, I remember hearing that it didn't start off as a Bundist group or one that was necessarily connected to the Bund. It started off in Manchester, as you said, but also more connected to uh, Jewish communists. Can you tell us a little bit about that process of the organising? Yeah, I mean, the initial people I went, I went to some meetings in Manchester shortly after I'd sort of found out about the group. And it was mainly people who were either in the Communist Party or had been in the Communist Party and some people who were in the Labour Party. In terms of um, Zionism and anti-Zionism and non-Zionism, you had some people who would consider themselves left-wing Zionists within it, but who had no intention of leaving Britain to go and live in Israel, but felt sympathetic to left-wing Zionism. You had others that would define themselves in more sort of non-Zionist terms. And over the next couple of years, you had others coming in who were more happy to call themselves anti-Zionists. But we kind of recognised our common ground on the things that we were wanted to move forward about, to mobilise more Jewish people in anti-racist and anti-fascist work, mm -hmm. to get more sophisticated debate on Israel-Palestine issues and shift opinion, both within the left and within Jewish communities. So we were so we were, were able to work on that, but more and more in that period, late 70s, early 80s, we kind of felt a need to define ourselves with, as a with a more um, holistic ideology. And that's where I have to say Zach's dad was quite influential uh, in the group, and uh, and he was around a group in Cambridge of people that came in and shared some of those perspectives, and actually it became the kind of common sense approach of the group because it really did speak to our common sense. So, uh, quite a number of us, and Julia can tell you this, but had been involved with Zionist youth movements in at some point, Julia more so than me, but we changed our perspectives and but were looking for some way to clarify exactly what our identity 
was. Yeah, I mean, the, the point at which I came into the group was the point at which that shift, I suppose, was happening between <clears throat> a group of disparate people from disparate backgrounds who shared some common ground towards a group that had a much more coherent and incipient diasporist politics, which asserted the right and the normality of Jewish life in the diaspora, wherever Jews lived. And for me, that was crucial when I came into the group, because I was very involved in a socialist Zionist youth movement when I was in my teens. And the impact of that that has stayed with me most is the socialist bit. The bit that I had a problem with from the moment I went to university was the Zionist bit, and not just because of what was happening to the Palestinians, although obviously that was part of it, and more so when I subsequently went to live in Israel for two years. And the attitude of Zionism to the diaspora, the downgrading of it, the undermining of diaspora cultures, the denial of Jewish history in the diaspora, the rewriting of Jewish history and the Jewish experience in the diaspora. And when I came into the Jewish Socialist Group, what I found was a group of people who reinforced my experience as a diaspora Jew. My grandparents came from the former Russian Empire and Yiddish speakers and I'd always been really interested in that and I'd had to keep that under wraps because in the Zionist youth movement it was really you know not acceptable to be interested in Yiddish music and Yiddish culture that was seen as some kind of throwback and so the chance to be Jewish and secular secular in the sense not necessarily of being atheist but of seeing the life of the state as having people of all religions and none as of equal status and facilitating that to fight for that seemed to me to be really kind of crucial. And I would say in that respect, I mean, I was also involved in a group called Women Against Fundamentalism, which developed those kind of ideas in a much more sophisticated way and brought that into the Jewish Socialist Group. And I think that informs our politics quite profoundly as well. I mean, I think there were a few different developments that <laughs> happened in the early 80s that really solidified our outlook. In the late 70s, we were very influenced by the anti-racist politics of various um, Asian political groups who adopted the slogan, here to stay, here to fight. And that was a really significant one. It was the opposite of what we were told in Zionist youth movements when we were in Zionist youth movements, mm. you know, here not to stay and here not to fight. Um, but, uh, um, but it was saying that it's not just a matter of fighting racism, it's also about forging some kind of future that is really equal in every way, if you're a minority. Yeah, um, that was one thing. Second thing is that early in the early 80s, when we were starting to think more about our identity, if you like, and also learning more about the significance of Yiddish for a lot of us and rediscovering that in a way, we also uh, recruited somebody to the group, a guy called Shalom Charikar, who was from an Indian Jewish community, the Bnei Israel community. And his perspective on things was very interesting and very challenging, but it actually blended quite well with the Bundism in, in lots of ways, you know, um, and in terms of diasporism and, and di different dimensions of diaspora. And he certainly, his approach to looking at Zionism was very different to the way a lot of um, mainstream Jews in the West were looking at it. Yeah, because it was predicated on an, on, on an anti-colonialist yeah, yeah. foundation, which 
didn't come from here. It came from the Indian subcontinent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he died in the early 2000s, but was around it a long time. And one of the particular initiatives that he did, which also spread beyond the JSG, was he, in the late 80s, he founded a group called Jews Against Apartheid, which was about apartheid in South Africa. And, and that was a very successful initiative. But also two things that happened in around 83, 84 and 85 was there was a change in London politics. The old London County Council became the Greater London Council, and the Greater London Council had been run by the Tories in the late 70s. Suddenly it was run by a very radical, late, well, it was run by a Labour administration, and then there was a coup within it by the left to make it a very radical London administration uh, under Ken Livingstone, John McDonnell, people like this, yeah? And, and they turned their funding operation upside down. Instead of being a very paternalistic funding operation among their chosen groups, they basically put it out there that if you are a group of people in London and you've got an initiative that you think would be good for London, write a grant application. And lots of minority groups and activists in minority groups were busy with this, and a lot got grants, and the Jewish Socialist Group was one of them. And we had something called the Jewish Cultural and Anti-Racist Project. It had to be a project focused on London, so it couldn't be, if you like, about our general politics. But that, in a way, forced us to kind of define those better. And a lot of the cultural stuff we did was around Yiddish developing Yiddish classes. We ran a Yiddish folk song workshop where for a couple of years, people learned lots of Yiddish workers songs and other things and, and uh, learned a lot about Yiddish roots, if you like. Um, but also we did a lot of work where we were doing public meetings with joint Jewish and black platforms in different community areas. And it was a very formative period for the group that really, it made us feel very at home within very wider anti-racist circles among many different communities and, and gained quite a lot of respect by people for what we were doing. But this was also in the exactly the same period when Thatcher had become the prime minister. So you had this radical London council and and just over the water because they were south of the river in the, in the building county hall and over, over the river was parliament dominated by the right going further and further right. The other moment that was really important would have been around 84, 85. We had started to have some contact with some of the older left-wing Yiddish activists in London, one of whom was Maya Bogdansky, a Bundist. And he came to speak to the group about the Bund and his activism. In, he, was a, he was in his 20s in the 1930s in Poland. He came to Britain after the war, 46, lived in the East End the rest of his life. And he gave this talk that was about 40 minutes long and it was a completely electrifying meeting. You could see the light bulbs going on and people's eyes opening and, you know, just it was like paradigm shifts happening in front of you. You know, and that really helped what Barry Smerin had done to help in pushing in that direction towards adopting a Bundist approach. Uh, here we had somebody actually who had been active in the Bund in the 30s, still believed very firmly in those same ideas and principles and was able to explain, you know, what, what that was about and just really excite and energize people with it yeah and also i mean it wasn't history at all because he was an activist in london politics 
as well as giving us this incredible history and politics from Poland. Mm. Um, I just wanted to add something about, about the GLC period, because what it did was assumed that people living at the grassroots of society in London knew what their own situation was and could identify their own needs. That sounds like just a commonplace thing to say, but actually, and I, I don't know if the GLC was aware of it when it started out down this path, was that the actuality is that they're not atomized, they're not individuals mm. who know their own situation. They live in groups and communities. And to give resources to people who are at the grassroots of communities, minority communities, is often to put them in conflict with the establishment institutions of their communities. Obviously, that applied to us. You know, we were immediately, mm. I mean, we, we were already at odds with the Board of Deputies, but that really put the tin lid on things for us to get money to define our own our own situation and act on it and make alliances with other groups. But it also identified for us the fact that we were not alone in the Asian community, as it was then called more accurately than it is now as Hindu and Muslim and Sikh and by religion. You know, at that time, there were a lot of young Asian activists who were completely at odds with their own community establishments who wanted to really be in with the government and in with the state. So we found common cause across communities underneath the official institutions of our communities. And that was seen as very, very, very threatening. And we did raise the ire of our communal institutions across the board. They they went nuts. Yeah, no, that's really, really helpful to understand what your organization has been doing. And the history there is really interesting and fascinating to hear how it's really moved to Bundism and really stuck with Bundism and really fights for cultural autonomy and communal self-determination. It's good to give my dad a shout out as well. Hi, dad. He'll <laughs> probably end up listening to this at some point. Um, I'm actually holding right now the most uh, recent copy of the uh, Jewish Socialist number 77. As with all the copies before, there is a list of principles like with any good uh, socialist publication so that you know what you're getting into when you're reading it. And one of them is uh, specifically uh, to support uh, and promote radical progressive cultural initiatives within and beyond the Jewish community. And that's something that you've laid out uh, quite extensively in context of the 1970s and 1980s. And the question now would be, uh, what kind of situation has it been in uh, in recent years when it comes to this kind of organising of the JSG, both with allies across different communities, especially marginalised communities? Uh, but what has what has it been like for these kinds of initiatives in recent years within the Jewish community, be it more uh, mainstream or, or less mainstream uh, uh, organisations? Well, I, I think there's been quite a shift, really, and there's been a bit of a proliferation of more radical Jewish groups. Sometimes they're more focused on, on a particular issue, hmm. but I would say that some of them actually really have a, a kind of more thoroughgoing analysis, and I think that the existence of the Jewish Socialist Group has given confidence to people to speak out on issues that are going to make trouble, I suppose. Good with, trouble. Yeah, mm. make trouble with the people who claim to speak for mm. all Jews. And, you know, the big issue, obviously, is Israel and Palestine. But it isn't the only thing. And I think often that's used as a proxy for trying to control the Jewish community on a whole range of other issues, and especially our relationship with other minorities. 
Um, do you want yeah. to say more about yeah, that? Yeah, no, what I was going to say is that we've always gone on lots of demonstrations with the JSG banner, We've got a new banner in the last couple of years, which I think is our best one so far. And the first time we took a banner on an Israel-Palestine related demonstration was 1982, the Lebanon War. And it was somewhat a scary thing to do because we were the only Jewish group who were doing that. And we'd kind of got there intellectually that where we, where we stood in, in relation to issues of justice in that situation. But at the time, anything pro-Palestinian was seen is associated with terrorism and Jews identifying with Palestine and the Palestinian plight were seen as self-haters, etc. Although really we hated the people that called us self-haters rather than hating ourselves. Um, <laughs> and uh, in a way, that situation where we were the only Jewish group, except for there was a small group of expatriate Israeli Trotskyists around Mutz Penn who would also come out on these demos. But until the millennium, we were the only Jewish group. But post-millennium, it's been very different. Mm. And I think particularly of 2014, the, the war on Gaza in 2014, there was a Jewish block on that demo that we were part of. But that was formed, that was created by the younger Jewish elements, people around Judas, uh, offshoots from whatever they were doing, because uh, it was quite a loose group. And there were about seven different Jewish banners on, the, on that demonstration. And, it, and it's been like that for quite a few years now, that mm -hmm. actually, when we've been demonstrating, um, there's, there's several Jewish banners, and we try where we can to have a Jewish block, whether it's on anti-racist stuff or on... Israel, Palestine, or, or or sometimes on trade union. Yes, um, and we do we liaise regularly with other Jewish left wing groups. Yeah. You know, we do try and find some common ground with as many people as mm. we can. Yeah, that doesn't mean that we agree with everything that people do or their kind of main perspective yeah. or anything really. But I think when it comes to a major anti racist demonstration or a demonstration that is to do with what's happening to the Palestinians and justice for the Palestinians, there is common ground and we can work together. And I think it's really important both for us, but also for other people to see that this is this is not the exception. And I would say that the last few demonstrations, we've had quite an accumulation of people around our Jewish block and our banners of people who are not Jewish, but are really interested in what we're doing there and want to know more about it. But also unaffiliated Jewish yeah. people who yeah, really cannot yeah. live with a lot of the stuff that's happening, mm. both in Israel and Palestine, but also around the Labour Party. You know, the uses and misuses of anti-Semitism, the mm. way the left in general is being attacked through the use of, of mm. the Jewish experience. People really can't stomach it and they're gravitating mm. towards people mm. who share their um, revulsion at all of that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say <clears throat> that one of the groups beyond the Jewish community that we've had strong connections with over the years has been uh, Roma. From around 1980, we had a kind of really remarkable person come into our group, a very quiet person, didn't say much in the first few meetings. He was a guy called Donald Kenrick. He's the only person I know who could speak Yiddish and Romani and several dialects of Romani. He grew up in a sort of um, kind of fairly ordinary Jewish home in Hackney. And by his mid-20s, he could speak more than 20 languages. And most of his work was work supporting Roma. And he lived in Bulgaria for a while. And even up to his dying day, I mean, he died when he was... 
late 80s or maybe about 90. Even about a few weeks before that, he was in court translating for Roma asylum seekers in their cases. You know, he was very involved in a very practical level. But he got us in touch with various people. So we were part of small demonstrations and activities that involved bringing Jews and Roma together. It was something we covered in our magazine quite early on. And we're normally present at Roma Holocaust Day commemorations and often with speakers and, you know, from JSG. So it, that, that's been a strong connection. I think with the wider anti-racist movement and minorities, some of that has become quite, um, so what's the word strained? for Strained? It? It's not so much strained. No, no, no. It, but it's, it's people are much more in very small identity groups. And it's... Um, I mean, I think, I think there's yeah. a real political problem going on in the anti-racist movement. Yeah, where it's very divided these days, especially in this country. It seems like these different groups are being pit against each other. It's like a divide and conquer strategy that's really clearly trying to be played out. Yeah. Yes, and I think I think there's some really kind of idiotic politics that's being allowed to, um, to run free, you mm. know, and it's really, uh, it's partly a function of how social media works. So, you know, if you see an argument going on that is totally moronic and predicated on ridiculous, uninformed ideas, you think to yourself, do I even want to get involved in this or I'll just be mm. awash with all this rubbish for, mm. for days on end? And it is actually really difficult to tackle yeah. and to look analytically at how to challenge racism what's actually happening to have a proper theoretical understanding of it without getting drowned out by stuff mm. that is just at best superficial yeah. and I, at worst wrong. Yeah, I suppose it's been easier to organise around immigration and refugee issues. Mm. That's where people do come together across some of those lines that divide them and work together more effectively. But I do feel that outside of that, we are in a much more fractured situation and groups come and go. And, yes, uh, and I also think that, you know, the, the way anti-Semitism has been used, it kind of looms very large, but I think it's a symptom of a much wider yeah. Hmm. problem that is to do with identity politics and people um, giving their list of victimhoods as credentials which hmm. put them beyond question and all that kind of thing instead of actually really understanding mm -hmm. what we're facing um, yeah it's frightening yeah yeah so i just want to be respectful of your time um, and yeah. i really wanted to discuss a little bit about the trip to poland that we were all on hmm. last week because uh, we're recording this on April 26th, and that is officially one week since the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And I just really wanted to take a few minutes to talk about what we were doing there. I mean, we, Zach and I, came separately on our own. You guys were there with a group of seven, I believe. Um, and we just wanted to talk a little bit about your experience and what was meaningful about being there for you guys. We were part of a delegation of seven from the Jewish Socialist Group. Dave, you, you well, take a okay, well, thoughts on that. Okay, all right. I mean, mm. just to go back a bit, we had brought a delegation for the first time in 2019. At that point, myself and Julia had been in Poland a few times from 2016. I was also there much earlier, but in the 1990s a couple of times. But in that period from 2016, we were building up some 
contacts um, in Poland within among Polish leftists and anti-racists and anti-fascists, but also among some Jewish people there. And so we had this group that went out in 2019. There were 12 of us at that point, actually. It was a really fantastic week, as well as seeing lots of things like museums and places that were about the memorialising what had happened. It was also things like the Polin Jewish Museum, which was telling us about the long history, but also today, Jewish life in Poland today. We felt very at home there, our delegation. A lot of us on our, in our group had roots in Polish Jewish communities. We just felt very, very positively and wanted to do it again when we could. And this year, we didn't have the capacity to do as grand a sort of thing as we did in 2019. Mm -hmm. We limited it to a smaller group. But it was the most fantastic week. We re-established and also deepened contacts that we already had. And we taking part in the commemoration was one of the big highlights. Um, I'd say also a highlight was what happened a few days before that on April the 16th, when there was this project that resulted in a commemoration of the other side of the monument. Nathan Rappaport Monument. Nathan Rappaport Monument. I've done a piece of research on the monuments of the Warsaw Ghetto, starting with that one, but looking also at all the others, because there are a lot and they're different and they represent different historical periods and different political currents. But the Rappaport Monument has got on one side this social realist, heroic, strong figures representing the Warsaw Ghetto fighters. But on the other side, which most people either pass by or don't really register very strongly, is a bas-relief showing ordinary people being marched through the ghetto to the Umschlagplatz. And in the background of it, of this bas-relief, you can see the helmets of the Nazi soldiers. And so the commemoration on the 16th of April, which was mainly organised by Susanna Hertzboek, the artist, was about everyday heroism, the unrecognised heroism just of surviving in the ghetto, the heroism of people caring for each other, the heroism of people going with each other to the Umschlagplatz, knowing that they would be put on trains and that they wouldn't come back, the heroism of creating cultural and educational opportunities in the ghetto under the noses of the Nazis in order to ensure that people had some kind of a civilised life and that their relationships with each other were nurtured and that their potential was addressed and that they were supported not just physically but also culturally and in other ways. And so that commemoration was really, really significant for for me and David, and it was symbolised by a really beautiful wreath made of bright, bright pink fresh flowers that had a really powerful smell and were carried by women from um, nearby to the memorial and positioned on the side of that bas-relief without the heroic figures, mm. but showing the quiet heroism of ordinary mm. people in the ghetto. I mean, that was very, yeah. very important. and two <clears throat> things about that. Also, I mean, the wreath, it was in the shape of a Star of David, yeah, but very different colours to the 
wreaths that have been left there since <laughs> or on the day or since you know the blue and white but there was also a wonderful moment there was a choir at the beginning of where we were marching from Krakow Revolutionary Choir they were singing Yiddish worker songs at the start and as we came and reached the destination which was the, the back of the Rappaport Monument uh, the second side of the Rappaport Monument the choir were up there on the kind of platform mm-hmm. you know, and as we were coming in we could hear them singing the hymn of the Bund, which were, and it was fan- fantastic. And, and um, yeah, yeah. But, but I, I also wanted to say something about yeah, the commemoration on. on the 19th. Yes. The alternative commemoration. Before you say that, I just want to add one little point to this. Marek Edelman quite famously said as well that all people who were the ghetto, all people who died were heroic, and that death in a gas chamber is no less heroic than a death with a gun in the hand. So remembering the people that tried to survive under such extreme conditions is as important as trying to remember those who are who very much resisted in our portrayed in this masculine kind of way. And of course, a lot of women also fought with arms in the ghetto. You participated in the commemorations on the, on the 19th. We all did. But David, you were up front doing some translations. Yeah, well, they gave me the translations to read. They wanted it to be conveyed in English as well as Polish. And there were two places. One was the Ziegelboim Memorial where we started. And one was the Umschlagplatz, the deportation point. Both of those I'd rehearse some stuff with Polish activists and actors who were reading the Polish and I was reading the English but these were all the words of Marek Edelman and for us also both this time and also the previous time being at the Ziegelboim Memorial was very very important for us because our group was responsible for memorialising Ziegelboim in London so so Ziegelboim was a Bundist who had engaged in a very open act of defiance against the Nazi occupiers in November 39, went into hiding and his comrades helped him get false papers to get him out of Poland in January 1940, but gave him a mission to do when he got out of Poland, which was basically to alert the West and those with power in the West to what was happening to the Jews in Poland under Nazi occupation and demand some extraordinary action for them. He did that first in Belgium, France, and then USA. But from March 1942 to May 43, he was doing it from London our hometown. And he was receiving information through underground networks, underground resistance networks, about messages coming out of the ghettos that were being passed on. And he was receiving them and broadcasting on BBC radio. He was lobbying diplomats and politicians and the press and trade unions. The Labour Party. Yeah, the Labour Party spoke at a very big Labour Party meeting in September 42, where he revealed the use of poison gas for mass murder in Chelmno. 40,000 people killed in seven weeks. So people knew what the situation was. In London, he was on the, the National Council of the Polish Government in Exile, representing the Bund, but by extension seen as the representative of the ghettoized Jews. And two things happened on April 19th. One was the beginning of the uprising. The other was the beginning of the Bermuda Conference, where American and British diplomats met and would spend 11 days deciding they could do nothing, nothing to particularly help the Jews in Poland or to offer sanctuary. And that was a real blow to Ziegelboim. And then May the 10th, 1943, he got news that the uprising had been completely crushed. And on May the 11th, he spent the day writing some letters, which were suicide notes to world leaders, his closest comrades, and to his landlady to apologise for what she was going to discover, because he 
took poison that night and killed himself. But his letters made it clear this was suicide as protest. And it was a protest not against the Nazis, who he was protesting at daily, but at the Allied powers, who he felt were not doing enough. So it was a very long campaign to get a plaque put up. It took three years in the end, but it was something that we were really proud of. And so for us to be able to come to Poland, where there's a kind of monument in a street called Ziegelboim Square, where he's recognised there for his contribution. And, well, we felt very intimately linked with what's happening in Poland to memorialize Siegelboim. Yeah, and I think it's also important to recognize that what we were at was not the official commemoration, it was the alternative yeah, yeah, commemoration. That's, yeah. that's what I was going to say something about that. Yeah. There has been an alternative commemoration to the official Polish state event for several years now. But this year, as the Polish government seems to have got more right-wing, more draconian, and the situation mm. across Eastern Europe in other countries similarly, we heard in the run-up to the 19th of April that the Polish government was actually trying to prevent the alternative commemoration, the grassroots commemoration from happening. And people were really worried about what would happen, about whether people would be arrested if they tried to organise a commemoration, whether they would be allowed anywhere near any of the ghetto monuments. Mm -hmm. I think some quite difficult negotiations went on behind the scenes, but there was massive security, including snipers on rooftops with their guns directed at us at various points. You know, it was a relief to us to discover that there was actually not just a grassroots commemoration, but a bigger one than the last one that we were on. Traditionally, it's assembled on the wrong side of the Rappaport Memorial, the one with the people, the vast relief of people marching to the, the mm. Umschlagplatz. We couldn't get anywhere near that on the actual day, but to assemble at the Ziegelboim Monument, which is a very, very powerful monument of a fractured world, seemed in some ways even more powerful than mm. that. Mm. So we wouldn't have had anything to do with their militarised, ultra-nationalist, flag-bedecked commemoration. But the one that we were on really did seem to reflect people's need to commemorate and respect the people who'd been involved in the, the actions that they'd taken. And one thing that might also be worth noting is that official commemoration, which was attended by the presidents of Poland, Israel and Germany, you could very much feel it being presented as a, as a great element of, of unity between these three nations, something that has gone a little bit under the radar. It has been reported in some places, for example, in Haaretz, was recently the Polish and Israeli government figured out a deal to resume trips for Israeli teenagers to Poland. One of the conditions that the Polish government gave and the Israeli government accepted was to visit at least some sites of Polish suffering in the Second World War, which included sites also connected to partisans such as Józef Kurash Ogień, who has been accused quite convincingly, in my view, of killing Jews or forces under him killing Jews during the war or after the war. And in the uh, immediately after the commemoration of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, there has been a story of the Polish historian Barbara Engelking, who has already had trouble previously with the Polish um, authorities or organizations supported by the Polish government about historical investigations into the Holocaust. She made an appearance on television in which she stated that Polish support for Jews during the Second World War was not as large as 
the official line of the state would have it be. She got very quickly attacked, including by the Minister of Education, who stated that he is going to order additional investigations into the matter, which is a very scientific way of approaching a historical subject. First, you have an opinion, then you build on top of that. I was going to say, just in relation to all that, I mean, one of the moments, I think it happened within the last two years, the Polish government is very pleased to bring certain visitors to the Rappaport Memorial. And one that was there in the last two years was Marine Le Pen. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was, that's my own thoughts on it, really, as well. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. for us, you know, the reason for going is to make an anti-nationalist statement. People who fought in the Warsaw Ghetto in whichever way they fought, in whichever way they resisted, they were not fighting for a nation state, whether that was a Jewish nation state or a Polish nation state or any other nation mm. state. They were fighting for liberation. And there's one memorial there, the Leon Susin one, which is the very first memorial that was put there after the war, which describes, it asserts that place as a place Polish people who were Jewish Jewish people who were Poles, and says this struggle was for freedom for everybody mm. and for Poland as a whole and everybody mm. in it. You know, this was not a monocultural state. It wasn't run by one particular group or for one particular group. As we know, Poland prior to the war was very, very multicultural, yeah. very multi-ethnic, very multilingual. Yes, especially Warsaw. Yeah, I wanted to share just a brief anecdote from my time there. After the uh, commemoration, I joined a group, including the Australian Bundes who were there. One of them, Devorah, was giving a speech at the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw. They were from Melbourne, where the only pre-1939 Bund organization still exists. We hope to do an episode with them in the near future. There was a group that was like a specifically Bundist tour group at the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. I think you guys and Zach went somewhere after that. I'm not sure what exactly you guys were doing. But I joined the cemetery group and there was a really profound, few profound moments. Um, one of which where I was just walking alone looking for the Bundists to meet up with. And I was had this realization that I am going to a cemetery, not specifically to, to mourn anyone in particular, but to go and be with people and focus on life. And as almost all Jewish trips in Poland are about Jewish death, it felt really meaningful to honor the dead by meeting and building relationships with living Bundists and other Jews from around the globe. Being with this group of Bundes, uh, not all of them are self-identifying Bundes, but the majority were. Um, we were at the Bundes Memorial at the cemetery, um, and there were a lot of other groups there, a number of March of the Living groups, Israeli groups. And when we got to the memorial, there was an Israeli group that was talking about it, and the person who was in charge of the tour on, that I was on was like, oh, we're Bundists. And there was like this really profound moment where it was like, these Israelis are talking about the Bund as if it's something that's only dead. But then here we are standing right next to them, proclaiming, we are here, we are Bundes, and we are alive and fighting for the values that these people died for. It meant a lot to me because I think it's important for these Israeli groups to see that this isn't something that's dead. This isn't something that's only in the past. This is something that still is alive. Going back to the commemoration we were at, the fact that they had Polish flags and Israeli flags, I was kind of annoyed with. I felt like they should have had the Job flag, the Jewish combat organization flag instead, if they were going to have a Jewish flag, would have been more respectful because it did feel like it was specifically honoring a Jewish state. There was a lot of rumbling about that. 
Those flags that were there at the different memorial points, where they were not put there by the alternative commemoration. They were, they were put there, there by the state. By yes. the state. The night before, they find all the memorials, memorial places, and they put those Polish and Israeli flags in the ground. And I think of all the people that that were killed, I mean, probably Ziegelboim is probably the most offended at having the Polish and Israeli flags outside his, um, oh, his, 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 his monument. But it's the, an absolute yeah. act of... Yeah. disrespect and uh, you know it's, yeah. it's a disgrace but uh, but also on I can't remember exactly which day it was no it was the, it was the Thursday also at the cemetery there were some Jewish socialists found their way there to the cemetery and earlier that day we had spotted Marie van der Zyl, president of the Board of Deputies, was present near the Rappaport Monument we saw her well the people who went to the cemetery saw her there with various other people, including people from the World Jewish Congress. And they were gathered by the Edelman grave. And the person that was speaking was saying various things that were fairly pejorative about Edelman. Very pejorative. Well, things like, you know, he demanded to be buried here. He was a very difficult man. He demanded to be buried in this cemetery. And what Edelman said happened, as though he just kind of was this kind of dictator. And in fact... They had a state funeral. I mean, this was absolute nonsense. Yeah. And and but the word that they couldn't use about Edelman because it couldn't be allowed to cross their lips was Bundist. They 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 managed to talk about him without saying uh, he was a Bundist. But the grave right there, Mark Edelman's grave, is right next to the big Bund memorial in the cemetery. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. He was buried with a Bundist flag. As a native speaker, I can attest to the fact that Edelman was often very grumpy in his interviews. Yeah. <laughs> in an amusing yeah. kind of in an amusing kind of way uh, we've talked for uh, quite a long time now i think that this might be a good point to stop when it comes to further organizing we're ending on a, on a positive note uh, is there any final things that you would like to say just it is really good to be in touch with you and other people who are organizing across different parts of europe and are really getting to know bundist ideas and not just getting to know them but living according to bundist principles you know what you said ben we are here Hmm. We are here and we're not going anywhere. Whatever that involves, we're going to struggle for a more equitable world. And it's really good to be in touch with a new generation and people of all ages and all backgrounds from different countries. Thank you for doing this and thank you for yeah. giving us a chance to talk about our activism and our politics. I agree with that entirely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's really meant a lot for us to be able to meet with you guys and also to be able to meet with you guys in Poland. I was around more Yiddish speakers than I've been in my entire life. And now I'm actually looking to learn Yiddish because it feels like a way that I can connect to a whole part of myself that I didn't even really know was there, but is. So thank you so much for coming today. We're really looking forward to doing more work with you guys. Very nice. Before we go, if you didn't notice, we had a different intro song this time. We'd really like to thank Ali Halpert for letting us use her beautiful song, Beautiful People. You should definitely check her out on Spotify. Her entire album, Lucen, is very, very good. Highly recommend. We'll see you next time.